I uh, wish I was here for uh, Mike Graves coming. Um, he has written uh, my favorite book on church history. It's a book on the Reformation. It's got to be the funniest book on the Reformation ever written. Mind you, there probably aren't very many funny books on the Reformation, but uh, Mike is a, a great man and a fantastic communicator. I encourage you to, to be part of that. Let's pray again. Father, we ask simply that you'd help us to uh, stay concentrating, uh, to remain open to you, and we pray you continue your work in our lives through your word. Amen. Okay, and the, the part of the Old Testament that's known as the wisdom literature, that's kind of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, some of the Psalms, sex is fairly prominent. Um, in Proverbs, young men are, at, are told to take a cold shower to resist the attraction of lady folly and wait for lady wisdom. Now here in the Song of Songs, it's the young women, the daughters of Jerusalem, who are told to take the shower and to make sure they don't slip into thinking that life is just like a Hollywood romantic comedy and to wait for the real thing. We'll come to that in a moment. So how does Solomon try to persuade women and by extension men like us who get to listen in to wait? Well, he does it by insisting that sex is really, really good. Now, the overwhelming concern in much of this book is to celebrate just how good sex is. It's a heady, intoxicating, satisfying gift from God to husbands and wives. The couple that Solomon writes about aren't strangers. They don't spot each other in the marketplace or in a club and think, I'd like a piece of that, and end up in bed together as quick as they can untie their shoelaces. See, this is about sex, but it's not about any old sex. It's about sex as God intended it. Sex which is enjoyed as part of the romance, love, exclusive commitment, cherishing, selfless love journey. This is a celebration of marriage as a sexual relationship rather than a detailed sex manual for use by the general public. See, the whole Bible is full of arguments and commands and reasons for making sure that sex is expressed in the right context. In lifelong, monogamous, God-underwritten, self-giving relationship in what we call marriage. There never was any other option in ancient Israel. Alternative lifestyles were not an option. Historically speaking, it is just nuts to suggest that the relationship between the lover and beloved in this book is anything less than a lifelong commitment which is either a marriage already or is leading there very soon. Now, I should say at this point that it's very hard to work out exactly how far the two people in the book, the lover and the beloved, go. Nor do I think it's something we should spend a lot of time and energy trying to work out. Uh, but there are two options. The first option is these two are actually married. And in the racy parts of the book, which we'll get to in a minute, they are descriptions of what they get up to in the marriage bed. The second option is that these two are about to be married and understandably doing quite a, lot, quite a lot of thinking, kind of imagining about what they're about to do. So if that's the case, the figurative language is a suggestive way of describing what they are going to get up to once they are actually married. Now, there's not really all that much writing on these two. Um, my, my friend Doug O'Donnell thinks they're married and having sex. 
On balance, I think they're engaged and they disappear into the sunset, presumably to have sex at the end of the book. But basically, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice. But it is crystal clear that their relationship is sexually charged and it's only going to end up in one place. But it is assumed everywhere that this couple are going to spend the rest of their lives together, enjoying one another in the way in which God intended. This book is a celebration of sexual love. So Solomon is very definitely for, for sex. He, think it's a, he thinks it's a really, really good thing. But he writes to make it clear that the best sex can only be found in the context of the kind of relationship that he describes and doesn't actually have himself. So before we look at the sexual language and the teaching about sex in the song, file this away. This book is about sex, but it's not ultimately about sex. It's always about something deeper and richer. Because Solomon is ultimately writing about real happiness and real love. The song is unashamedly sexual, but it never ever suggests that life is all about sex. And that actually becomes steadily clearer as we look at the sexy bits of the book. Okay, so let me start this session by by just pointing out how Solomon talks about sex. Four things to notice. Now, I should have mentioned in the first uh, section, um, paragraph headings in Bibles are generally helpful. They help us to find our way around and to remember where on the page things are. Sometimes in the Song of Songs, they are very unhelpful. Okay, just be careful. Even, Even in the ESV, which I use, it's a great version of the Bible, but they change their mind between reprints. Um, Someone showed me an ESV during the break where it says that Solomon is speaking in the first half. If you move on to later versions like the ESV Study Bible, they've realized it's probably not Solomon. It's just he, (laughs) you know, the beloved. (laughs) So just be careful about those ascriptions. Sometimes they can confuse. Just a note, if you want to ask me about that, ask me later. But how does this song talk about sex? Okay, well, Solomon first of all, is deliberately vague. This book is full of images that are clearly enticing and kind of vaguely erotic, but they really can't be nailed down. Okay, so 2 verse 3, for example. His fruit is sweet to my lips. Some writers try to give this a very precise physical interpretation, but I think it's much simpler to say that the beloved likes the thought of kissing her lover. He tastes good. Now, to say any more than that is basically to try to read into the text rather than to work it out. Or or look at 4 verse 13. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruit, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You're a a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. See, it's not that he is... Uh, referring to part of her body as her plants or saying she's got a lovely set of pomegranates. It's a, it's a general picture, not a specific one. You're not supposed to try to, to try to match these up in every detail. It's a general picture, not a specific one. Similarly, 5 verses 1 to 3, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. This isn't a list of euphemisms for orgasms, as some people have suggested. 
They're just lots of pictures of satisfaction where everything is left to the imagination. And it's exactly the same in 8 verse 2 when we get back to the pomegranates. There are quite a lot of pomegranates in the book. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. It's supposed to be delicate and vague and suggestive and enticing and even modest rather than explicit. Now add to that the fact that much of the book is made up of dreams and it really isn't supposed to be exactly clear what's actually happening. And that whole thing is part of the delicious anticipation of their union. So in the same way as we'll see in a moment, the, the watchman didn't actually beat the woman literally, 5 verse 7, because she's having a dream, 5 verse 1. Throughout the book, we're not supposed to take all this picture language and, and try to work out its precise physical counterpart. We're not supposed to say which part of their bodies are they touching. It's a picture of the satisfaction they find in loving each other. See, this song is deliberately vague. That's the first thing. Solomon does that on purpose. The second thing he does, he never ever separates sex from marriage. Let me just, this is so important that that let me just demonstrate it. The refrain of the book, the kind of chorus, consciously restricts sex to the context of a committed, permanent, monogamous relationship. That's the clear implication of 2 verse 7, 3 verse 5, and 8 verse 4 that we looked at. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on that one, but I think the meaning is actually pretty clear. Make sure you get things the right way round. Until there has been a conscious decision, until there is a real, concrete, irreversible, public commitment... Until you're married, then don't muck around with sexual attraction. You see, Song of Songs is not pornographic. Song of Songs does not describe sex as a commodity or as a merely physical act between two human beings, any two human beings. Song of Songs says this is a gift for marriage. Third thing to notice is that in this book, Solomon never actually says the couple have sex. Now, that's a slightly troublesome fact, at least for those who read the book as a sex manual, that it's not really clear that they they ever consummate their relationship. The closest comes in 7 verses 11 to 14, where where we read this. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates, see, more pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrances, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I've stored up for you, my lover. It's heady stuff. It's supposed to be. But I think in all likelihood that when they make it to their secluded spot, She says, I'm really sorry, the pomegranates haven't bloomed yet, you're just going to have to wait. You see, there is no kind of explicit sort of steamy X-rated scene. (laughs) Just this sense of anticipation. And the fourth thing is, Solomon says lots of stuff in this book which actually isn't very sexy at all. (laughs) Not all the language in this book is sexual or even sexy. Well, there's plenty in here that's vaguely suggestive. There's much that isn't. For example, in, in 4 verses 9 and 10 and 5 verses 1 and 2, what does he call his beloved? Sister. 
That's purely relational intimacy. And even that doesn't seem to suggest that sex is everything as far as old Solomon is concerned. See, it is a mistake to treat this book as simply about sex. It's not a manual. The metaphors are far too slippery for that and deliberately so. At points, it's clearly talking about kind of sexual attraction. You know, these two clearly, clearly are drawn to each other. But beyond that, it's hard to work out. This book is not explicit. It's daring, suggestive, enticing, provocative, but it's, it's never raunchy. I kind of reminded a bit of watching, you know, some old movies when I read this book. I don't know, some of you may remember this film called Brief Encounter. It's kind of classic, you know, it's made in 1945. And it's about a chance meeting at a railway station between uh, English actor Trevor Hard and a, a woman called Celia Johnson. Okay. In a sense, not much happens in the movie. See, it's 1945. You know, nobody had even sworn in a movie but, but at this stage. So there are no romps between the sheets. You know, there's no kind of sexual innu- innuendo. But even today, a lot of people regard it as an absolute classic. Why? Because the film manages to capture the compelling attraction between these two people without an inch of naked flesh being shown. At one stage, I think there's a glimpse of Celia Johnson's ankle through her stockings, but but that's as steamy as it gets. And yet if you watch this old movie, it's it's hugely erotic. It's kind of gripping. You You know that these two people are hugely attracted to each other. And yet that's never portrayed on the screen. And that's what Song of Songs is like. You know, with one difference. In Brief Encounter, the couple are thinking about having an affair. These two are married or on the very point of getting married. And, you know, as soon as possible, please. Now, in our world, the constant powerful suggestion is that real passion and unbridled sexual attraction isn't to be found in a settled relationship. One that grows over time. It is to be found in a quick encounter at the office or in a chance meeting at a pub or a railway station or in a clandestine encounter with your friend's wife. Sexual excitement in our world is portrayed as involving danger and risk and crossing boundaries and and risking being caught. And none of that matters when you're swept along by real passion. But what does Solomon say? The best sex is found at home with the one you love. The best sex comes when you wait. See, Solomon strikes a delicate balance between language which is extremely provocative on the one hand, but never explicit and actually quite homely and relational on the other. He manages to be neither prudish nor pornographic. He raves about sex without ever cheapening it. And the end result... The effect is to create an incredibly positive view of sex in the context of this loving, passionate, exclusive, lifelong friendship that we call marriage. See, this song brilliantly walks a fine line. And in that, I think it's a great model for us. In the past, the church of Jesus Christ has not been fantastic at talking about sex. It's been pretty poor at talking about sex inside the doors of marriage And it's been even worse at presenting the sweet and passion and delicate balance of the teaching of the Bible on sex to those outside. 
That's why we need to learn from this song. There's no need to be embarrassed about sex, but nor is there ever any excuse for being crass. But we don't have to choose. We have a model here and in other places in the Bible. We just need to ask God to teach us to think and speak straight so that we're freed up to speak appropriately and positively and unashamedly about human sexuality, but to do so in a way which is loving and considered and nuanced and shows how much we value this gift from God and where we celebrate, where we never retreat from the conviction that sex within marriage is the real thing. This song insists that sex within the safety and love and commitment of marriage is the real thing. Solomon, who, as we've seen, presumably had over a thousand sexual partners, knows what he's talking about. And as we will continue to see, he writes this book, I think, to expose the emptiness, the dissatisfaction, the distortion that is produced by sexual license. From the standpoint of a life of sexual indulgence, he speaks with regret. He speaks as one who should have known better. He speaks as one who celebrates the sheer joy and intimacy of sex as God designed it. Now, right now, at at this point in human history, we don't face unique challenges, but we do face intense challenges. And on the one hand, we mustn't let the world bully us into being negative and defensive. But on the other hand, we mustn't let the world bully us into thinking that this kind of sex, that God-given sex within marriage, is anything less than the real thing. You know what? It's actually hard to believe this today. The multi-billion dollar porn industry And almost every movie and series on TV and almost every novel you can pick up implies that this is nonsense. We're told from earlier and earlier that sex is meaningful when it's dangerous and forbidden and illicit and experimental. The implication is that if you're normal, you will be having sex constantly. And you will be constantly seeking sexual excitement. But God says, no, do not settle for that. Sex in the context of a loving, lifelong relationship is the real thing. Take hold of that and do not let it go. Now, for the rest of our time in this session, I I do want to take you through the book to show you how Solomon presents this message about sex and love in this song. I want you to see how this book works, how the message of the book takes shape as we move through the song. I kind of want to justify what I've, what I've already led before you. And for that, we actually have to see that, that this song is a story. It's an unusual poetic story set to music, but it is a story. Now, we're going to move fairly quickly, so, so let's go. Now, I've already mentioned it's not always easy in this book to work out who's speaking, Uh, Who says what? But it's clear enough that Solomon introduces in chapter 1 to a man and a woman who are very much in love. They aren't given names. Different Bible versions give them supply names in the heading. Um, The NIV usually calls them the the woman the beloved and the man the lover. It's fair enough. The ESV opts for the slightly less romantic he and she in its paragraph headings. 
Now, we don't actually know if they're real people or based on real people or are created by Solomon to make his point. I think that I think I think they actually are real people that Solomon met, but but it's a song, you know, it's poetic, so in a sense it's not the text doesn't make it clear, so can't be too much writing on it. But what is clear is that this song is a song about real the real world. Okay, this is this is not a Hollywood movie. These people face real problems and issues. There's nothing romanticized about these two because they live in a, in a bruising and broken world. Now, how do we know that? Now, we've already seen that the woman's family is pretty messed up. And according to 1.6, the woman's own family had exploited her to her cost. My mother's sons, presumably her stepbrothers, or maybe her brothers, were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards but my own vineyard I have not kept. See, for this Cinderella, it's not her stepsisters, but her stepbrothers that have caused the problems. They've made her go out and work in the heat of the sun so that she is now sunburned. Why does Solomon tell us this up front? He wants to see that that our world is a mess because it's full of people like us but the beautiful thing is, even this, in this messy world, it's possible to find real love. It's not necessarily easy, but it's not impossible. Real love is worth pursuing. It can be found even in our broken world. And in the rest of these first two chapters, Solomon basically urges us to hold out for the real thing. 2 verse 7, as we've already seen, daughters of Jerusalem, <laughs> don't settle for anything less than the best. Now, who are these two? There's one possible clue comes in 1 verse 12 when the beloved, the woman, says that the king was at his table. Who is this? Is she talking about Solomon? Is he the lover? Or is she simply comparing her lover to a king? Well, Solomon, like any good storyteller, doesn't kind of give us the punchline halfway through the story. He doesn't tell us just yet. Then we move into chapter 3 and the, the woman is dreaming. It's a strange dream in which the girl is running all over the city looking for him and failing to find him. It's a bit strange. That doesn't sound like Solomon. You want to find Solomon in Jerusalem, it's really not very hard. The two big buildings in Jerusalem are the temple and Solomon's house next door. You know, it would be nuts. You know, you know, running around the city going, I can't find Solomon. Where is Solomon? They're going, <laughs> there, in the big house that says Solomon's house on the top. Okay. So you begin to think, who is this? She wakes up, and after the, the refrain of 3, verse 5, it seems that she dozes off and has another dream. And this one is, is a bit easier to tie down. 3, verse 6, who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of all Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself this carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that this girl is dreaming about her wedding. What's her dream wedding like? 
It's a royal wedding. She dreams of her dream lover rocking up in Solomon's carriage to sweep her off her feet. Like countless little girls through the ages, she imagines herself in the shoes of a fairy tale princess about to marry Prince Solomon Charming. So is this Solomon? Is this a description of his wedding to Pharaoh's daughter, wife number one? Well, it could be, but I don't think it is Solomon. Because in the rest of the book, apart from the lover referring to the beloved as a prince's daughter, there's no mention that this is a society wedding. On the contrary, in the beloved's next dream, in 5 verses 78, she's beaten up by the night watchman, which is an extremely unlikely scenario if she were Solomon's wife. Verse 7, the watchman found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my, my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love. Solomon, I don't think, was in the habit of letting any of the 700 wives or the 300 concubines wander around the city in the middle of the night. Then there's the climax of the beginning at verse 11, as we saw where Solomon gets a knockback. So here's what I think is going on. The girl has a dream like many, like many girls of her wedding. Having seen one of Solomon's weddings, and let's face it, there must have been plenty of opportunity, she imagines her wedding to be like this, where her, Solomon, shows up in his carriage to take her away. But actually, when King Solomon, who's built the carriage, bends down to kiss, her, kiss his lover, he has the face of the ordinary bloke that she loves. He wears a crown in her eyes. Is that totally clear in chapter 3? But not yet. But at the end of chapter 3, it could possibly still be Solomon. But he is a surprise to spring on us, which the writer is a surprise to spring on, spring on us, which he holds back for a little while. As we read on, there is no mention of the king or his entourage or palaces. And gradually it dawns on us that this woman is waiting for her real Solomon. There's further evidence that this is what's going on in chapter 5, where the couple almost meet in their dreams, but for some reason in verse 6 it doesn't happen. <laughs> Just read this. I opened for my lover, opened the door, <laughs> but my lover had left, he was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but didn't find him. I called him, but he did not answer. And then she goes out and gets beaten by the watchman. This isn't a how... This didn't happen with Solomon and his wives. Basically, he clicked his fingers and the wife who was on the roster was brought in. If he wanted to add someone to his harem, he sent his carriage and they brought her in and that was that. That's how it happens. That's how it happens in the book of Esther. You know, a king's looking for a you know, best-looking wife in the kingdom to replace you know, current incumbent. Have a competition, win the competition in the harem. Dead simple. It's not like this. Solomon knows it out there in the real world. That's not what it's like. There's misunderstanding and longing and frustration and disappointment. And yet, as the book goes on, Solomon describes this relationship as the real thing. This kind of exclusive, yearning, full-blooded, passionate love in the real world is the real thing. This would explain why in 6 verses 8 and 9, Solomon, the, the songwriter, has the lover point out that even all the queens or at least numbers 1 to 80, as well as the concubines, recognize that his beloved is in a different league. 60 queens there may be, or 80 concubines and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. 
It seems that it may be that Solomon met this woman when he had 60 wives, 80 concubines. He went after her as usual. She, she was one worth pursuing. And as this song comes to an end, Solomon probably as an older man reflects on his own sexual conquest in the light of the one that got away and realizes that he's missed out on something. This exclusive, passionate, intimate relationship, which, which is his closest brother and sister, which is more passionate than any of his liaisons with his harem, this relationship enjoyed by these two peasants is the real thing. Even in the middle of the messy, broken world outside the castle gates, real love, it seems, is possible. Without a harem, without henchmen to bring in the latest recruit. This is the kind of love worth pursuing. This is the kind of relationship that leads to really good sex. This is the foundation of love and sex that lasts and is satisfying. Listen to these words from chapter 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like the flame of Yahweh. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. See, this is the kind of love that we want for ourselves and our children or our little sisters. Verse 8. We have a young sister and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she is spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. We'll protect her from sexual predators. We'll, we'll nourish her. We'll protect her. We'll, we'll allow her to blossom. Because this is the road to contentment. Verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Not exactly crystal clear what that's saying, but the woman is implying, I am a wall. I have waited for him. That's why he longs for me and why we will find contentment. How can a man with a thousand wives or pseudo wives say this? Because he knows that he's had lots of sex, but no contentment. No shalom, verse 10. Peace, that's the word. No wholeness, no completeness, no, no satisfaction. If you want to compare this ultimate song to any other, it would have to be Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. You know, Solomon is the Bible's equivalent of Mick Jagger. You know? After all that he's been through, Solomon has finally realized what's wrong. Sex is great, but only if it's the real thing. Only if it's in the context of romance, love, exclusive commitment, cherishing selfless love chain that the Bible calls monogamy. This is sex within marriage. This is good sex. Any other kind of sex is not only inferior, it's damaging. You can't break that chain and expect everything to be great. For some of us, it'll be hard to hear that. The fact is, we all know that in a group this size, you know, there are hundreds of us here who belong to Jesus Christ, that some of us probably a large-ish number, will have messed up sexually. Like in this room, I suspect that there'll be representatives who have broken that chain of romance, love, exclusive commitment, cherishing, selfless love, sex chain at every point. Anytime I've opened this book, anywhere, men have come to me or others at the end and asked for help with porn addictions or Ask for advice on breaking the pattern of repeated use of prostitutes in massage parlors. 
confessed long-buried adultery or ongoing serial adultery. This is our broken world. Let's not pretend that, that, that we're any different. The temptations, the urges we have to deal with are very strong. And I know that some of us who are here who are not yet married will have already slept with people who are not our wives. Either our girlfriend or girlfriends or had one-off encounters that we deeply regret. Some of us will have made tragic mistakes in the past and some of us will be locked into an unhealthy pattern in our lives right now. There may be some of us who have every intention, even as we sit here, of continuing this pattern of behavior. Can I gently and lovingly say this to you? Stop it. Stop it now. You're damaging your partner. You're damaging yourself. But more than that, you're disobeying God. You're saying to God, I do not believe you when you say that you know what's best for me. I do not believe you when you say that I have given you this gift for use only in this relationship of marriage. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it is sin. And as with all sin, it is extremely dangerous. And what we need to do is stop sinning in the power that God supplies, confess our sin to God, run to God and do whatever it takes to enable us to cope with temptation. Make no mistake, this, this, is, this is hard. It's hard for all of us. I once came across a Christian couple who maintained that they were waiting to have sex until they were married. However, they were living in the same house, alone. They were actually sharing a room. In fact, they were sharing a double bed. They were appalled at my suggestion that they might be sleeping together. How dare anyone suggest such a thing that, that they might have sex before marriage? Eventually, I, I suggested that actually if they hadn't had sex after sharing a bed for months, then it was probably a good reason for them not to get married. No. <laughs> You know, these two lovers in the Song of Songs couldn't have kept their hands off each other if they were sharing a bed before they were married. There's only so much temptation that any of us can cope with. So what should we do? Minimize the temptation. Back in Ireland, uh, when the winter rains get a little warmer and we know it's summer and women start to shed the layers that have been concealed in kind of during the winter, it's a rough time for, for blokes. Because, you know, men in Ireland aren't used to seeing, you know, you know flesh, human flesh that's kind of <laughs> tinged with blue, you know? You know I mean, we used to say to teenagers, you know, that this pattern developed where they would say, right, we're, we're you know, we're going to go away on holiday with our girlfriend, you know, to somewhere in the Mediterranean, where we're both going to kind of remove as, ma as many of our clothes as we can get away with and hang out together away from our community, our friends, our family, you know, our Christian brothers and sisters. We used to say, don't be stupid. It's like saying, let me show you how much temptation I can resist. <laughs> no. It's more sensible and far more biblical to make sure you don't put yourself in this situation. We have to man up here. We have to actually say, you know, okay, I know when I get tempted. 
And don't, don't put ourselves in that situation. Don't. If you get tempted when you're in a hotel room alone, hundreds of miles from home on a business trip, you need to find a way to manage that. You need to set a routine. Whether you speak to your wife on Skype or on the phone, whether you make sure that as far as possible you arrange activities with, you know, with your business colleagues, you need to do something to make sure that you are not are, are not exposing yourself to temptation. If it comes down to it, you would be better to give up your job and stay at home if there is no way around that. Whatever it is, you actually have to address it. Because I, I cannot stress what a big deal this is. Men who go to men's conventions have affairs. Some years ago, one of my friends was on the staff of another Bible teaching church in our city. He never missed men's convention. He never missed our preacher's conference. We worked together. We, we often talked about how to advance the work of the gospel in our city. Then it became clear that all through this time, he had been having an affair. When he was exposed, he said all the right things, but there was one thing that he wouldn't do. He wouldn't break off contact with the woman. It was tragic. And this lack of action showed that he hadn't repented. Now, several years later, mercifully he did, and God has wonderfully restored that guy. But he will live with the consequences of the hurt and damage he has caused, both to his wife and actually to the cause of the gospel in our city for years. You probably know that the Hebrew word usually translated repentance just means turn around. Turn around and run in the opposite direction. That's what we need to do when we've mucked up. When we've made selfish choices, when we've deliberately disobeyed, when we've hurt God and others, we need to turn around. We need to admit that we were wrong without making excuses or pleading mitigating circumstances. And that's always different, diff- difficult. And we need to start acting differently. Repentance is always hard, and, uh, but it's always tangible. See, when we repent, when we turn around, we look different. There's no more cockiness, no more defensiveness, no more justification, no more blaming other people. Repenting isn't just mouthing the right words. It always shows in a change of attitude. It's always marked by shame and desperation. When we repent, we, we aren't simply trying to claw back a few brownie points. Repentance never says, but I've said I'm sorry. As if by picking out the right words, like a kind of get out of jail card in Monopoly, you know, we, we've earned the right to be forgiven and respected again. Now, when we repent, we realize that all we've done is come to our senses. All we're doing is what anyone with any sense or humility would do. It doesn't earn us any points. If it's, it's really true to say that repentance doesn't bring any merit, but it does put put us in the place where we can receive mercy. To repent is to realize that we've been utterly stupid and to throw ourselves on God again. Why would we do that? Well, we'll only do it when we see that God speaks the truth when he says that his way is better. When we, we'll only do it when we realize that our emptiness can only actually be filled by his love. We, we will only do it when our cold hearts are thawed to the extent that we care more about the damage we're doing and the hurt we're causing to God and others than our own felt need for satisfaction. 
See, that's why ultimately it is only the gospel. As the Spirit works it deep into our beings, it's only as we, we see Jesus Christ again and the satisfaction that God offers us in Him, it's only Jesus can bring about a real change of direction in this area. It's only the gospel brings about real repentance and ultimately real change. Do you want to know the joy of being forgiven again? Do you want to know that your guilt has been dealt with? Do you want to be set free from the crippling pain of the shame you now feel? For the big things or for the little things? For the way in which you spoke to your wife before you left this afternoon? For your shortcomings as a a dad or a boyfriend or a man? for your struggles to relate to your family in a godly way, for your wavering love for God, for the fact that you're an inconsistent friend. Do you want to taste and see again that that the awesome God is good even though we're anything but good? Then look to Jesus Christ in the gospel again. Because it's only in looking to Jesus that we are moved to repent to run back to him and to keep doing it, not because it earns us points, but because it's all we can do to to get to a place where we're ready to receive God's incredible kindness and mercy, even when we've sinned sexually. It's a really important issue for people like us. We need to recover the lost art of repentance, a change of direction that's both difficult and tangible. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, it's one of the most basic things we need to do and keep doing. So if we haven't learned how to repent yet, now would be a great time to do it. Not because there's merit in it, but because there's no mercy without it. And, And I can't point you to a single verse which sums this up, but really this is what underlines this book. As Solomon reflects on his own sexual failures, Solomon knows he's mucked it up. What does he do? As we'll see as we move to the end of our our last talk, to the end of this book, Solomon looks to the God who loves him. Sex is really, really good, even though we have an almost infinite ability to muck it up. But it's not ultimate. There's more to life than sex. And not even sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. It's serious, but it's not unforgivable. The only unforgivable sin is ultimately refusal to repent. It's Jesus himself who says in Mark 9, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. I reckon Solomon would have said a very sobered amen to that. Sex is good. Sex in the right context is brilliant. But it's not ultimate. That's why for sexual sinners, even spectacular sexual sinners like David's, Solomon's dad and Solomon himself, sexual sin isn't the end of the road. That's why this book is not utterly depressing. For let's face it, none of us, none of us have been flawless in this area. 
Those of us who, have mar who are married, can we honestly say that we have never been anything other than selfless and gentle and loving and nourishing with our wives? Can we honestly say that given the right circumstances and opportunities, we too might not have fallen into sexual sin even if we haven't already? Jesus says, even if you've looked at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. But the great news of the gospel, which is anticipated here by Solomon, is that there is something greater than sex. There is something more powerful than sexual sin. And it is ultimately the love of God that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in him that we find satisfaction and forgiveness and strength and transformation. And that's where we'll pick things up in the final talk. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we pray that you would help us to be honest. In the quietness before you, we, we ask that you'll help us to face who we are. We pray you'd help us to face our, our failures, our weakness, our deep-rooted wrong attitudes. And Father, we pray even now that you would remind us that you sent Jesus Christ to die for, for all this and more. That in the risen Lord Jesus, we have one who knows us and loves us and owns us and is determined to purify us, to change us, to, to transform us so that we look like him. Lord, even now, give us the good sense to run to you, to look to you, to cling to you. As forgiven sinners, even now, to taste and see that you are good. Lord, where we need to think, think things through, where we need to talk, where we need to take action, we pray you'd help us to be men, not to run away but to seek you and the help we need. To relocate our confidence in what you say, that you alone can satisfy, that you alone are good, that you alone are God. Work in us in your mercy, we pray. Amen.